Jerry Sitzer understands grief and loss in a profound way. He and three of his children escaped from a car accident that took the life of his wife, his mother, and one of his four children. How long would it take for someone to recover from a loss like that? Here's Jerry Sitzer. Through a long journey, often very difficult, I really did discover the Christian faith is true. Grace really is available to get us through these hard stretches of life. The ultimate message of Christianity is not self-help, it's God's help. This is Family Life Today. Our host is the president of Family Life, Dennis Rainey, and I'm Bob Lapine. Jerry Sitzer says when the landscape of life has been permanently altered, God's grace is there to help you make some sense of the loss and to give you peace. Stay tuned. Welcome to Family Life Today. Thanks for joining us. We have been talking a lot, uh, not just this week, but in recent weeks, about the subject of loss. And uh, we're trying to help listeners understand that your response to the losses you will experience in life will help shape uh, you and your family and your marriage and your whole life. It will. In fact, uh uh, our guest on today's program uh, really is the result of some losses that Barbara and I have experienced in recent days. In fact, I want to welcome Barbara to the broadcast again. Thank thanks for Glad joining us here. again, sweetheart. And thanks for recommending uh, Jerry Sitzer's book, A Grace Disguised. And Jerry, I want to welcome you to uh, our broadcast. Welcome back. Thank you. It's a privilege. Jerry is the professor of theology at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. And uh, as we've mentioned earlier, Jerry's book, was used in our family uh, as Barbara was uh, recommended it by a friend, and she started reading it after our daughter Rebecca and her husband Jake lost uh, their daughter Molly after only seven days. Uh, this book really helped uh, Barbara and me, as well as Jake and Rebecca, process through how the soul processes grief. And we mentioned earlier how you lost your wife your mom and your daughter in a tragic car wreck in 1991. And that really is the, the genesis of this book. I have to ask you a big picture question here, Jerry. If you could summarize what you think God is up to when he allows us to experience grief, what would you say? I mean, you've experienced it on a profound level that few people ever, ever do experience it on. What do you think he's up to in grief? I'm not sure I can answer that question in a word. That's a very difficult question, actually. I think overall, I would say that God is in the business of reclaiming people who have turned away from him. He created us in his image. He created us to be gloriously beautiful people who participate in the divine glory, the perfect relationship that exists uh, between among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've turned away from that, and that divine image has been marred and made perverse. And he wants not simply to save us, he wants to reclaim us and restore us. And one of the ways that happens, like it or not, is through suffering. 
I honestly think suffering is necessary in the Christian faith. Now, it happens in lots of different ways. Some we can choose, say, the suffering that comes from denying our appetites and practicing self-discipline, self-denial, John Calvin called it. Sometimes that suffering is imposed upon us through some kind of loss or tragedy. But either way, we need some kind of suffering, not masochistically, but honestly, realistically, to become the holy people God wants us to be and to draw us into a vital uh, relationship with, with him. The grief that we experience when we go through a loss, to what extent are we in, I don't want to use the word control, but to, to what extent do we have power over that grief? And to what extent does the grief have power over us? You know what I'm, I'm asking here? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying this. I, I don't think God causes these things as if he were some kind of divine manipulator who hovers above the ground and zaps us with cancer or divorce or loss of job or loss of portfolio or loss of a loved one. I, I, I think that's a very poor, mechanistic view of the sovereignty of God. I think God is in it. God's sovereignty envelops it. I don't think God causes it in that kind of crude kind of way, but I will say God uses it. God's in it in that sense. Our choice is whether we're going to respond to the work, the sanctifying work God is trying to do in our lives. And uh, does grief, does loss have power? Of course it does. I mean, it can change the entire course of our lives. But I think the greater power is the way we respond by faith mm-hmm. to God's work in our lives. This is a hard thing to say. I mean, it sounds so easy and so trivial. Oh, you know, God's trying to sanctify us. And I, 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 I almost resist saying it because I don't want it to come across kind of cheap, as if I'm quoting a Bible answer right. or a Bible verse, and that Bible verse is going to make everything right. Well, God works all things out for good for those who love him. I mean, that is a true statement. I believe that with all my heart. I also believe that is extraordinarily hard to work out in normal life. There were times when I'm sure the grief had to be, I don't know if I want to say overwhelming or just so compelling that you felt powerless against it. Of course. I think any true catastrophic loss leads to that. That's the difference between uh, a normal loss from which you'll recover. You're a high school athlete. You break your leg. You lose the season. It's a, it's a big loss. It's hard. But you're going to get your leg back again. You might be able to play another season. There's a big difference between that kind of loss, though significant, and uh, the loss of a spouse or the loss of health and that sort of thing. I call those irreversible losses. And I'll tell you, they have power. And we're fools not to acknowledge the power they have. Um, Interestingly, I was with our daughter, Rebecca, a couple of weeks ago, and she and her husband, Jacob, had renewed hope. They had gotten pregnant with baby number two. And then at 14 weeks gestation, the baby died. And she had to deliver this um, stillborn baby at 16 weeks, go through the labor and the delivery, and which was traumatic in and of itself. Um, but as I was there for a week, and we had many really wonderful conversations, one of the things that Rebecca said to me that I thought was, was really profound, she said, you know, we're not as fragile as we think we are. We feel like in these really hard times, like we won't survive. Um, 
But she said, I've learned that we can handle a lot more than we think we can handle um, because God strengthens us to go through these things that he takes us through. And she said, I'm just amazed that that I can go through this and still live um, because you feel like you won't live. You feel like you're going to die because of the burden of the grief. But she said, I've learned that we are stronger than we think we are. We aren't as fragile as people as we imagine that we would be when looking at a situation like that. Did you feel like you weren't going to live in the days that followed your wife's death? No, I think that's maybe a little too extreme. I knew somewhere deep inside my soul that God was still God. Um, I I had to live in this dynamic tension between uh, acknowledging the severity of the loss on all levels, not just intellectual but emotional. I mean, grief has its way. It's it's erosive. It gets to you. You can push it away for a, a month or a few months. You can work hard. You can develop bad habits, whatever you want to do to kind of run away. Eventually, it's going to get its way, and it's going to tell you that those people are gone and they're never going to come back again. So that's a one side of things, acknowledging the severity of the loss. On the other hand, it also requires us by faith to recognize that there's a bigger story being told, that God is somehow in this, even if we don't see how he is, even if we don't have any evidence at our immediate disposal that God is God and God is good, somehow we have to believe that that is still the case. Mm-hmm. And you have to live in that tension. If, if you pretend it's not severe, it's like painting over mold, um, but you don't want to give that mold too much power either recognize that you can get rid of that mold and put on fresh paint and make that that wall beautiful again. So it's, uh, it's, it's a very um, delicate process to navigate through the months and sometimes the years involved. So you're not saying to somebody, keep a stiff upper lip and, and deny what the, the anguish of your soul in the midst of grief? I don't think so, and I don't think the Bible... Uh, teaches that either. I mean, you look at the book of Psalms, 50% of them, about 75, are devoted to uh, uh, psalms of lament. That is the anguish of the soul in the face of uh, unanswerable questions, or so it seems at the time, and uh, unimaginable loss, grief, betrayal of enemies, and this kind of thing. I mean, we have a kind of emotional handbook right in the Bible that's acknowledging the severity of these kinds of losses. I think it's not wise to pretend they don't exist or that they're not serious, but they don't have the final word. That's what a Christian believes. The final word is a resurrection. Mm-hmm. Jerry, uh, you describe a, um, a scene in the mortuary where you visited the, the three caskets and you asked to have them opened, uh, and you were there alone for about an hour. And you said at that point that that ushered you into a darkness. Describe what took place in in that setting, uh, in that mortuary. Well, it's difficult. You have to use images. Be, I think language just fails, as it does to all people who've gone through some kind of severe loss. I, I felt like I was floating just in the universe, uh, utterly cut off, utterly alienated, completely alone. And I looked around to see billions of stars. The, the, the world seemed like a, a cold, impersonal place. It was really an awful experience for me. But it also ended up being a significant turning point for me, too. 
uh, that very night or a few nights later, I had a kind of waking dream. It was a dream, but it was not like a typical dream at all. It was very vivid, very real to me. It is to this day. And in this dream, I was chasing frantically after the sun that was slowly setting in the west. And I remember as I was running that there was this frantic, panicked, terrified feeling, as if as if, if that sun beat me to the horizon, it would never come back to me again. And finally, the sun did sink below the horizon, and I stopped exhausted and looked with a sense of foreboding over my shoulder to the darkness from the east that was uh, sweeping over me. And then I woke from the dream and I felt a kind of existential darkness, as if I was going to be in this darkness for the rest of my life. It was really a terrible feeling. I told a cousin this dream a few days later, and he reminded me of a poem written by John Donne. He's a very famous 17th century uh, British or Anglican poet. And in the poem, Dunn says that on a flat map, east and west are far removed from each other. The farther east you go, the farther you are from the west. But in a globe, if you go east, you eventually meet west. Then I talked to my sister about this, and she said, that's the cue for you, Jerry. If you keep running west to try to stay in the fiery warmth of the setting sun, you will actually stay in the darkness longer. But if you have the courage Mm -hmm. to plunge into that darkness heading east, even if you're hanging by one thin thread of faith, all the sooner will you come to the sunrise. And that was really a cue for me to to head into that darkness and let grief have its way with me, uh, assuming that I would all the sooner come to the sunrise. And you did have a period of darkness in the days that followed. There was depression and daily weeping. This is, as as we sit here 18 years later, talking about trusting in God in the midst of those days, it was a hard journey. You were it's on. a hard journey. Lots of tears, lots of tears of my kids. Actually, the hardest period was after the tears stopped. You know, the tears kind of turned to brine. It became thick, uh, bitter, mm-hmm. almost like molasses. It didn't flow quite so easily. And that was darker still. I mean, this is this is hard work. It is for anybody who goes through a severe loss. Yeah, and watching my, our daughter go through this, um, both Barbara and I have felt as parents so powerless. Apart from our prayers, there are really no words to be able to share. I, I mean, our daughter um, found a lot of healing and help in writing a blog. And... Um, I'll never forget one of her blogs where she described mourning the loss of her daughter and finding comfort by uh, crawling up into the crib Mm. and weeping for the loss of of her baby girl. Mm -hmm. And as those who, who peer into other people's lives coach us a bit on, on how we can keep up, an appropriate distance and and not be trite in what we say. But what should we say? What should we do for that person who is entering or in the valley of the shadow of death? I would say presence, consistency, patience, 
and symbolic gestures. Uh, I have a, a young friend. She's not so young anymore. She was the accompanist to Linda's voice students when we lived in Iowa. She has sent me a long letter and card on the anniversary of the accident for 18 years. Hmm. Uh, Recalling incidences, sharing life, expressing sympathy. She's never too syrupy. That kind of gesture I find profoundly meaningful. You know, when we're not affected by loss in the dailiness of our life, it's easy to think after two or three months that people should be getting on with the business of life because Uh we are getting on with the business of life. But for those who are affected primarily in a primary kind of way, they're the ones who have suffered the loss. They're the ones whose landscape of life is permanently altered. They are living in that for a long period of time, in one sense, for the rest of their lives. Now, their perspective is going to change over time. Mount Rainier is always 14,410 feet. It looks a lot bigger when you're a mile away than when you're 50 miles away. The size never changes. Our perspective can change over time, admittedly. So I think that dailiness or that consistency, that presence, those symbolic gestures are probably the best we can do. And then simply pick up on cues, Dennis. I mean, the cues, when they're ready to talk, then you're ready to listen. When they really feel like they're ready to receive a word from them, then you give it, but never before that. Mm -hmm. And what you don't want to do is use words to try to somehow push the loss and its significance away. Sometimes words can actually exacerbate the problem rather than help the problem. I mean, Job's Job's three friends did their best work when they just shut their mouths for a week and sat with Job on that heap of ashes. Barbara, were there people in your life or in Jake and Rebecca's lives who uh, did some of those same things, those symbolic gestures that Jerry's talking about? Yeah, there have been some remarkable young men and women, friends of Jacob and Rebecca's, who have, um, frankly, they've done things that I wouldn't have thought to do. On the very first Easter after Molly died, one of their friends brought an Easter basket that was pink with pink candy and a pink bunny and a pink bow and left it on their front porch and said, Happy Easter. It would have never occurred to me to do that. But it was a powerful statement of love. They didn't stay themselves. They just left it there. Um, And so there have been those kinds of things that people have thought to do. And what we've noticed and learned by watching them is if you have an idea of something like that, act on it. Hmm. Um, Because so often I think we think of an idea of something, then we think, well, gosh, that might not be a good thing to do. And Um, But the people that have encouraged Jacob and Rebecca the most are the ones who have had the thought to write him a note or have had the thought to do the Easter basket, and there have been other things, and then they acted on it. Jerry, I hear Barbara's story about the Easter basket, and I think to myself, boy, I don't know that I'd want to do that. It's almost like saying, here's a reminder on Easter that you lost your child nine months ago. But I guess when I stop and think about it, they know it anyway. (laughs) That's right. Are you kidding me? Of and course we, they think we about did a it. lot of things as a family too. We always uh, we've always observed the anniversary of the accident, and at key milestones we'd have dinner parties, hmm. and I'd invite our kind of key community of friends over, and we'd observe it and celebrate it, and I'd thank them. Uh, my wife Linda would have been sixty in April. I talked to all of my kids, and we just kind of 
oh, laughed about what it would be like for them to have a 60-year-old mother. I mean, we have been pretty mindful of these important milestones along the way to observe, even after all these years. It's not at all bitter anymore. I mean, we have a lot of good story that's happened in these last 18 years. It's been very rich and meaningful for us, but we still are mindful of this loss and these important dates and milestones and so on. Sometimes um, the grief will be expressed in a phone conversation, in person, in a letter, or maybe an email where it's clear the person is truly grieving and at that moment they're really hurting. And um, here recently I I received an email from uh, our daughter and, and husband uh, just around what they were experiencing, and I started weeping. I just wept. And uh, I, th- I thought, what can I say? And so I just wrote back an email. I'm weeping with you, mm-hmm. Dad. And I think, I think many times in our desire to help, as you just exhorted us, Jerry, I think your words were really, really good. It's back to that statement, I have... I have regretted my speech, never my silence. Uh, Sometimes the gift of presence, of just being there, or of letting someone know you're praying for them, or you're there for them, may be all that's needed in that moment. But never underestimate the power of another human being touching another life at a point of tremendous trauma and hurt and a catastrophic loss like you experienced. Well, and and coming alongside with a gift like a copy of Jerry's book, and and you can say, you may not want to read this right now or right away, but at the right time, I believe this book will minister to you in a profound way. We've got copies of Jerry's book. It's called A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss in our Family Life Today Resource Center, and we would love to send you a copy. You can find out how to order one by going online at familylifetoday.com. Again, our website, familylifetoday.com, or call 1-800-FL-TODAY, and we can uh, get the information we need from you by telephone and make arrangements to send you a copy of Jerry's book. Let me also mention the book that, uh, Barbara, you have written, along with your daughter, Rebecca, about uh, the loss you experienced a year ago when your granddaughter, Molly, was born and lived for seven days before she died. That book is called A Symphony in the Dark. Hearing God's Voice in Seasons of Grief. And uh, you can find more information about that book on our website as well. FamilyLifeToday.com is the website. Or call 1-800-F as in family, L as in life, and then the word today. Now, tomorrow we'll talk about how we can be used by God to bring comfort to others as they experience loss. And I hope you can be with us as we continue our conversation with Jerry Sitzer. I want to thank our engineer today, Keith Lynch, and our entire broadcast production team. On behalf of our host, Dennis Rainey, I'm Bob Lapine. We will see you back next time for another edition of Family Life Today. Family Life Today is a production of Family Life of Little Rock, Arkansas. Help for today. Hope for tomorrow.